If you remain standing with me as we share in God's good word together from the gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 19, 4 through 6. Let's share in God's good word together. He answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So if you have your sermon notes tonight, I want to visit particularly with our young adults tonight, uh, our sermon series, The Right Person Myth. We continue. Uh, last week, we talked about um, that finding the right person does not ensure that everything will be all right. It just doesn't. You, you may find someone that you're very compatible with, but that's not a good indicator that everything in the rest of your life is going to be okay. It's just not. That's a myth. Yet in 2014... 80%, that's your first blank there, 80% of Americans under the age of 30 believed in a soulmate, one, the idea that there is one perfect person out there just waiting to be found to make you whole. That is a myth that doesn't exist. There's only one perfect person that ever walked the planet, and his name is... Oh, good, we're doing well. All right. Yes. It's not someone that you're just going to meet. Or is waiting for you. Jesus has come to you, is coming to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, is with you tonight, I pray. And that we come to a deeper understanding of that. Next week, we're going to talk about how do we become the right person. But tonight, uh, we're going to talk about intimacy. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about something that's really for adults only. The talk, so to speak. And so, rather than placing all of our hopes and dreams that someone out there can complete us, uh, this is what I really want you to hear tonight. That it is more important to become someone than to find someone. All right? It is more important to become someone than to find someone. Will you say that with me? It is more important to become someone than to find someone. And as Christ followers... We are to become like Christ. Our identity is to be found in Jesus Christ, not in anyone else. Because anyone else will disappoint us. And there will be a lot of pain around that. So what I would like for you to know, what I really need you to know, young people and single people, um, is found uh, in the early church's writings in 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to share that with you in just a second. But before you say, oh, well, that was then and this is now. Just know that Edmond, Oklahoma has nothing on Corinth, not by a long shot. We we think that things were sort of easy morally today, uh, no more so than it was in Corinth in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, uh, you could have sex with as many wives as you had money for, uh, and, and that wasn't considered adultery. Not only that, if you got tired of your wives, you could have sex with any of your slaves. There were no laws against that. And if... You know, 10 or 12 wives wasn't enough and 20 or 30 slaves wasn't enough. Then it was perfectly okay to sleep with prostitutes. That was encouraged in Jesus day. Really, the only person you couldn't sleep with in Jesus day, if you were male in that system, um, was someone else's wife. And that gets killed. But all the rest of it, fair game. So when you think, well, that was then and this is now, um, in some ways around Emma, we might be a little more strict than in Jesus day. And so. Hear this bombshell that Paul drops to the people 
um, in Corinth and, and the way they believe. This is what Paul says about our sexuality to the folks, the first followers of Jesus in Corinth. Paul says there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one since we want to become spiritually one with the master. And, and he's talking about Jesus, uh, about the scripture we read just a little bit ago. We must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever the kind of sex that can never become one. There's a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. That's true. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love, for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, God's place? The place of the Holy Spirit. Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. Now, Christians have struggled with this idea of the body being bad and your spirit being good for years. It's a heresy. Um, that was solved in the councils, uh, but happens to still float around today. Um, I want you to know that your body is good, made by God. Your mind is good, made by God. Uh, your soul is the sort of all of those things put together. And so what you do with your body makes a big difference on your spirit, makes a big difference on your soul. And, and one of the things that you might be surprised to find out is that God created sex and he thought it was good. God created good sex without shame. So the thing is, if you think that sex is something you should do to sneak around, that's not how God intended it at all. There should be no guilt or shame with sex. God made it and called it good. In Genesis 2, uh, you find uh, the first sexual encounter. In Genesis 2, God's made the heavens and the earth, and, and he's night and day and light and dark and sea and all these things. And then he comes to animals. And, and whatever Adam says that is the name of the animal it is. Lion, lion, bear, bear. Uh, but there's no suitable helper. There's no suitable partner. There's no one that makes Adam feel right in this world. And so God says, well, I'm going to make Adam a suitable partner, a, a helper. Um, one that, that they go together. And so God creates Eve. Um, and when um, then they don't have any clothes on at this point, right? Um, completely naked. And so Adam goes through and, and he sees Eve. And you know what he calls her? Whoa, man. This is really awesome. This is great. I've never seen anything like this. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I, I got to know more about this. And so the scripture says, then they did. They became one flesh, which in the scripture is a euphemism for sex. Right? Because if you know how sex is done, it's as close to one flesh as you can be. Right. That's what that's what the Bible's talking about. And it was good. And the end of the scripture at verse 25 says, and this is important. And they were not. Anybody know the answer? Ashamed. They were not ashamed. Adam, Eve, no clothes with all the animals around them. Doing the grown up. Not ashamed. It's great. It's all good. Now, how is it that you get from there to where we are today? Where, every, you know, dark and sinister and power and control and all the 50 shades of gray nonsense. Completely different. Completely different than what God intended. 
First of all, particularly for the students, let me say this. There's no way that a 15-minute talk during middle school is going to prepare you or anyone for the complexity of sexuality. Right? And so parents, if you think, oh, yeah, I, you know, they were in sixth grade and they were going to go do it, you know, have the talk at school. And so I, I did the talk at home and check, I'm good. No. No. Andy Stanley, in his book on love, sex, and dating, encourages parents to not have a 15-minute conversation with their children about sex. He encourages us to have a 15-year conversation about our sexuality. And certainly that will be important for me and my boys that um, while it's somewhat important for Noah and I to talk about his sexuality and and the way that is, he's here tonight, I know he's loving this, um, (laughs) you know, it's probably going to be more important that we're talking about it when he's 30. When he's got two or three kids and I've got grandkids. Yes. Uh, And his wife doesn't want to have sex with him anymore. Because she's, you know, got kids all over and is exhausted and worn out and doing this. And and, and he's going to need to be able to talk about what what happened. You know, it didn't used to be like that, but now it's like this. Well, what what do you do then, Dad? I hope that we'll have the kind of relationship where we can continue the conversation, not just for 15 minutes at a time. So Paul says to the early church, and he's exactly right, sex isn't just physical. No, no, no. There's more to sex because there's more to you. Right? Are are you just a body? No, of course not. You're you're much more than that. You have a mind and you think and you have a soul and you have feelings. There's much more to you. So there's supposed to be much more to sex than just something physical. And so then it becomes very, very important who you commit to. So I really, really, really want to encourage you Uh, If you're not yet married, please don't commit yourself to someone who is unprepared to keep his or her commitment to you. That is a recipe for disaster. Now, notice that I didn't say don't commit yourself to someone who. Who says they will. Or thinks they can. What I'm saying is if someone hasn't prepared their life. To commit to you. Then you ought not commit to them. You know, one of the biggest things that I struggle with when when I'm counseling, doing premarital counseling, is when we get to the issue of debt. Two people come in and one person says, well, I love her and she loves me. And and I look at him or her and and I say, well, you know, how are you all doing financially? Do we do a financial plan together? Because your finances will be together uh, in early marriage. Some of the older marriages I do, they're prenups and that's all already taken care of. Uh, but for the young ones, this is a really big deal, uh, particularly when it happens like this. Oh, no, I worked on my way through college and it was great. And I came out with no debt. I said, great. How about you? And they say, well, uh, I've got about thirty six thousand dollars of student debt, a car payment and about twenty five thousand on credit cards. How's that working out? I mean, you can you can watch the other person blanch because sometimes it's, it's in that moment. That's the first time they know of it because the other person's never been brave enough because they knew that they would leave them if they found out. That's what they thought. Because now you're not just coming in equal, equal. You're coming in with 50 plus thousand dollars that that's on you. And, and it takes a very rich kind of person to be able to handle that kind of debt and, particularly in your 20s, early 30s. Am I making sense? So, so the question is, is the person you're thinking about committing to prepared 
not just wants to, but is really prepared and able to commit to you. Relationally, financially, as well as physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's a very important question. Well, how do you know? How do you know if somebody is able to commit to you? Well, the best way to know if someone's prepared to commit is to examine his or her prior what? Commitments. Do they have a job? How long have they had that job? Did they move up in the job? Did they move down in the job? What are their other relationships like? Do they have any friends? That's a big one. If you're that person's only friend, run. Right? I mean, that should tell you something. Right? Do they pay their bills? Right? When you go over to their house for lunch, do the lights come on? This is a big deal. <laughs> right? You need to know. Does their car mysteriously disappear when you're having a date night? Because it's been repoed. I mean, these are things you need to know. Right? Obviously, debt. Do they have a dog? How do they treat their dog? Do they treat them kindly? Do they feed them? Do they let them out when they need to go? Do they have a family? Do they talk to their family? Are they kind to their family? And particularly, girls, if you're looking at a guy, what's, his, what's that guy's dad like? More often than not, they're going to be a lot like their dad, whether they want to be or not. Girls, you know, you're looking at that. Guys, if you look at a girl, you really want to know what you're marrying? You know, want to flash forward 30 years? Look at their mom. Do you like her mom? she nice? You know, because that's, that's probably what you're going to get in about 20, 30 years. And that's just kind of the way you grow into it. Always look at the parents. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good reminder of, of what's probably coming your way. Now, I know that when we come to sexuality, um, th- that we're on rough ground for some of us. Because what I find is that when someone says, Pastor Mark, I really need to talk to you about something important. Uh, I need to talk to you about something that's really shaped my life or blown up my life. Um, Most of the time, people's greatest regrets involve something sexual. It's either molestation when they're young or sexual encounters before they were ready or abuse. And that that can be really devastating. And it takes some really serious intentional work to get through that. Um, And I can help you get to people who can help you do that. That's an important conversation. And at the same time, I want to say this, that most people's greatest and deepest joys in terms of family also involve sex. When we poll people and we say, well, what are you most grateful for? What are you most thankful for? Almost every time they say my family. You you talk to parents, one of the greatest joys in their life for their kids. Well, that's normally part of sex. That's all that goes together for most folks. So like all major decisions, our sexual decisions follow us around. And sometimes, literally, as two- and three-year-olds, they're following you around, your decisions. They're going to be with you for a while. You know, so, so be aware of what you're doing. And, and again, kind of like last week, I, but it needs repeating, it's not like the movies. It, it's just not. It's not like the movies. Uh, there's a big difference. And, and I know that you know that, but I want you to think about, about this. We often show our little girls, and sometimes our little boys, uh, princess movies, right? Any of y'all see Snow White? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love Snow White. But, but I want you to look at Snow White as an adult. Let, let's take a look. Okay, let's play this out. We have 50-some-odd youth here. They're going to spend the night here. 
And, and maybe some of them even think they love each other. And so imagine a girl in our youth group falls asleep in the chapel. And the boy who's always liked her sees her laying there asleep. So he gathers at least seven little men around him. And he says, I think this is going to end well. They go outside, get some deer, some owls and critters. Say, hold on. They gather around. Everybody watches while she's dead asleep. What do you think happens next? I guarantee you it's not this. I mean, you're going home. I mean, that is not okay. I mean, even if you're married, you shouldn't kiss people in their sleep. You could suffocate them. It's dangerous. I mean, don't, don't do that. You, I know that's ridiculous, but think about it. I mean, we, we could not be more far off about what we see in movies and we don't even think about it. And, and we go on our life like, hey, I think, she's, I think she wants me to kiss her. No, she doesn't. She's asleep. Don't do it. And you get similar kinds of messages around sex. Well, well, it's okay as long as you practice safe sex. Right? I mean, you hear that. Well, it's just safe sex. Well, friends, when it comes to your soul, there's no such thing as safe sex. There might be safe physical sex. Maybe. Maybe. That's a stretch even. But certainly when it comes to your soul, about who you're going to be connected with for life, you hope and pray. There's no, there's no such thing when it comes to your soul. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right? I heard that line first at Jurassic Park, which I thought was really good. There was this big dinosaur coming, and the guy's running like, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And then he eats a guy. Right? They shouldn't have made the dinosaurs. There's a time and a place for things. There were time of dinosaurs then. There's a time and a place for sex. And just because it's exciting or just because you might even be good at it doesn't mean that you should do it. And again, just like the movies, TV is not much better. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was studying up on this, I asked Noah uh, to sit down. Uh, he's been power watching Friends um, on Netflix. And so I asked him um, to sit with his mother right next to him and to mark down every time there's an, a reference to sex, sexual innuendo. And, and, and I'll, I'll show you. This is from season five, episode four. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable in church, it should. Why it doesn't make you equally uncomfortable at home, I don't know. Because God's equally present in both places. Equally concerned about your soul in both places. And, you know, as you, you get used to that, you think, well, you know, premarital sex is no big deal. You know, Chandler and Monica, and that's working out for them. You know, minus the creepy gloves and the, you know, bumping into the door. But what we found is that as we watch Friends, uh, there's a, either a sexual reference or sexual in, innuendo, um, according to Noah's tally, about every two minutes. Uh, the thing is uh, that Noah's young enough, he doesn't know that it's really about every 60 seconds. It's almost double that, Right? Um, and so we go. And, and so the thing is, you think about that, that that goes in your head over and over and over and over again. And if you're not careful, you just sort of start thinking like the culture. It happened in Jesus day. It happens in our day. Here's the thing I really want you to know. If you're my age, you already know this. Um, but if you're young, you may not know this. Uh, it is clinically proven that sex can make you stupid. At least relationally. It just does. 
Sexual involvement early in a relationship masks relational issues. And all you have to do is look in your high school parking lot and see the 16-year-old girl in tears screaming and running after a guy's truck and you have no idea what is going on. Every, every adult knows what's going on. Those two kids are sleeping together. And she thought he was it and he just took off. And now she doesn't know what to do with the rest of her life. And the adults know this. And the kids are like, wow, how'd you know? How can you not know if you've had friends and loved ones go through a horrible breakup because what was meant to keep them together is now ripped apart and their hearts are broken, really broken. You see, sex is both precious and powerful. It is, and it's wonderful, and it's a good gift, but it's designed for relational permanence. So even in Jesus' day, when you had 12 wives, those were your 12 wives for life. That's why it was so important that you didn't divorce them. Because once you have this connection, it's supposed to have relational permanence. There are two metaphors uh, that are used regularly in this conversation. One is fire. Sex is like fire. And, and that's, that's right. Fire's good. It can cook your meals. It can keep you warm. It's perfect in your fireplace. It's lovely. It's romantic. It's wonderful. And in the context of marriage, in a covenant relationship, sex is great and important. And it keeps you together. However, what happens when the fire gets outside the fireplace? It'll burn your house down. It's a disaster. And it's not that sex is good or bad. It's that sex is powerful and precious and it's a good gift. And in the right context, beautiful in every way. And in the wrong context, sometimes deadly. Dangerous. The, the other one that many pastors use, myself included is that sex is kind of like duct tape. Now, this may have you a bit confused. But duct tape really does patch up a lot of stuff. And if you're married and you've had a bad day or maybe even a bad fight, sex can make it better. It can. Make up sex. That's why they have the term. Right? And so one person and one person, you put them together, what happens? Is that easy to get apart? No. It's not. I mean, it is really stuck on there. I mean, I'd have to really do some work to get this apart now. So as a married couple, is sex good for keeping you together? Absolutely. But what happens if you're not married and you have sex? And then you decide that the girl is horrible. Well, now it's pretty rough, isn't it? The other thing that's also true about duct tape, if you've ever um, happened to move, some of you have moved. And you put duct tape on, on packages or boxes or in your garage. And what you find is, you know, you, you rip it off and it keeps a little bit of the, the cardboard box with it. And you try to reuse it. And, you know, you run out, you try to reuse some duct tape. How's that working for you? Not well. It's not nearly as sticky. And the thing is, the more you use it, the less sticky it gets. And our sexual intimacy is meant to stick us together with one person. And so the more that we've used that piece, that wonderful gift, it becomes less and less sticky, less and less effective in holding things together. So some of you have heard this. Oh, well, since sexual sin is different, then what do you do? Is that the unforgivable sin? No, of course not. God can forgive any, anything. And, and, and if you have a sexual past that you'd like to get over, God can help you with that. And, and this is very, Jesus is very clear about this. Our sexual past can be forgiven, absolutely. 
but it's rarely forgotten. Rarely forgotten. So this woman caught in adultery, which was a big deal in Jesus' day, that could, that could get you killed. You'd get stoned for that, right? Because again, you could sleep with all your wives, all your slaves, all the prostitutes, but with another person's husband or wife, that's a different deal. So they catch this woman who had been caught in adultery. And then Jesus, they come before and they're ready to stone her. And Jesus is like, hold on. All of you without sin, you cast the first stone. And then Jesus says to her, she's looking like, now what? And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go your way from now on. But what? Do not sin again. And that's the difference. He says, don't, don't sin again. Sister, be free. From your past. You don't have to live like this anymore. You're forgiven. But let's make some wiser choices for your own sake, for the sake of the community, for your own soul. So these are some things I really want the young people to know. I also want to share with you a, a real story. Uh, this was in uh, Andy Stanley's book. Um, when he preaches, um, does this with his um, church over in Atlanta, um, he came across this story. It's by a girl named Denise. He says, Denise grew up in a religious home. And when she graduated from college, she moved to Atlanta and immersed herself in our dating culture, he writes. These are her words. You know, it's not that I quit believing what I used to believe. It's just that I kind of took all of that and I just put it on the back burner for a season. And I decided when it came to dating in my relationship with guys, I wasn't going to factor God into the mix in that part of my life. Before long, her lifestyle bore little trace of the religious values and morals that she'd been raised to embrace. And dating was just another form of entertainment to her. Guys came and guys went. There was guilt, but there were ways to deal with guilt. She wasn't doing anything that everybody around her wasn't doing. And there weren't any significant consequences. She even prayed occasionally. Life was actually pretty good. She developed some effective coping skills for those times when life wasn't good. But then she met the right person. And it happened at a friend's apartment complex during a party. And an hour or so into the evening, a guy that she had never seen before walked in. And she knew immediately that that was somebody she really needed to meet. And before the night was over, she managed to get herself introduced to Mitchell and his group of friends. And in her words, he was the total package. Looks, personality, career, everything. And a few minutes into the conversation, it became apparent that Mitchell was a Christian. And in a lifestyle sense, not, not just a cultural one. And he was serious about his faith. And even in a social setting, it was evident that faith was an integral part of his life. Denise found this strangely appealing. And it surfaced those things that she had put in a box for later. And Denise left the party determined to find a way to cross paths with Mitchell again. The following weekend, Denise drove home to visit her family. And on Saturday afternoon, she was talking with her mom while folding clothes. And it wasn't long before her encounter with Mitchell surfaced. She went on and on about his looks and his job and his maturity. And before she realized it, she'd been talking about his faith, too. Specifically about how central it was to his life and lifestyle. Mom, she said, he's like a real Christian. He's the kind of guy I've been looking for. Denise said it was at that point in the conversation that her mom put down what she was doing. And she looked at Denise. And she said these words that she will never forget. Sweetheart. The problem is. A guy like that. Is not looking for a girl like you. Denise said she literally fell to the floor in a puddle of tears and cried and cried and cried because she knew her mom was right. There was no denying it. This was a defining moment for Denise as a single woman. In a flash, the values and beliefs and childhood faith that she put on the back burner flooded to her soul and she was overwhelmed with who she had allowed herself to become. 
So in that moment, she decided to become the type of person the person she was looking for was looking for. And in that moment, she decided to change everything that was not aligned with those things that she wanted to be. And by her own admission, there was a lot that needed changing. Priorities, values, friendships, where she would and wouldn't go, who she would and wouldn't go with. And Denise's story brings to us the question that we'll look at more next week. And I hope that sticks with us, particularly for our young single people. Are you the person you're looking for is looking for? If not, are you willing to begin the process of becoming the person you're looking for is looking for? And if you made a list of what you're looking for in someone, which isn't a bad idea, would that person be looking for someone like you? And if the other person's list matched your list, how would you measure up? You see, if your right person is the sum of the things on your list, what do you suppose is on his or her list? This takes time, friends. That's not a one-day deal. So, if you're married, what do you need to know? Well, Paul writes it very simply in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 6. He says, now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, first, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, Paul says, absolutely, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Paul's just straight at it. And then he says this. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. That's one of your blanks there. A place of mutuality. The husband's seeking to satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether it's in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it and it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but for only such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, Paul says, understand this, I'm not commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Paul was a single guy. Okay? So, very simply, Paul says this, don't withhold sex. It's ironic, isn't it? That the single people really, really want to have sex and it's bad for them. The married, married people really, really need to have sex and they're still mad about something else 20 years ago. It's completely backwards. So in essence, if you want to know the, the, the sermon in a nutshell, single people don't. Married people do. More often. You need it. Because it's about the stickiness factor. Don't withhold sex. The bed, like all marriages, is to be a place of mutuality. And Satan's always working to blow up your marriage. Because it's very important. And wonderful and beautiful. So you say, well, what is this about? My hope, friends, is this. My hope and prayer for you is for a true, real, joyful intimacy. Free of ghosts of other people. Guilt about your past. Fear or comparison. Because all that really happens. So here's, here's a challenge. For my single friends, purity now paves the way for intimacy later. So if you're single, I'd like for you to consider this challenge. Beginning today, take a year, really a year, off all romantic and sexual pursuits so you can have some clarity about who you really are talking to, to break some habits that need to go and set standards. How far is too far? What I really want in my life? Because someday... You're going to ask, what drew us together? What drew us together? And if the answer is sex, that may not serve you so well. If that's really what drew you together. You're going to need more than that. 
A lot more than that. And then, for all the married people here, I want to invite you to take the Be Intimate Challenge. Be intimate with one another for 10 days in a row, starting today. Whatever that means for you and your spouse, be thoughtful, be kind, be intimate. Care for them. Valentine's Day is on Saturday. So it's an important part of marriage to really be thoughtful and kind and intimate with one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of love, the gift of relationships, the gift of sex. We thank you for it all. And we ask that in your perfect timing, in your perfect will, in your perfect way, that you would redeem it all, make it good as you intend for all your children to have the abundant life that you promise in Jesus Christ. It's in his wonderful name that we pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.